All right. Thanks for sticking around. I thought a lot of you would run for the hills, man. You had you had your chance. You can pay the price. Uh, so we are so pumped to, to be here next week. This is these are our our five older grandkids who'll be here next week. And um they think Gull Lake's the greatest place on earth. Anybody else feel like that? Like, is this yeah. And um we have actually, in our grandchildren, seen transformation just from their week here of the way the college leaders, college students have loved on them and valued them. And I think a lot of you have felt the same thing for your own children, haven't you? I mean, it's really, really cool. I've also loved how David has talked to us about what Reach Beyond is doing creatively just to respond to the changing world. I found this morning and tonight super inspiring, and I just love it. And I was thinking about the... The people that started that 90 years ago, none of us even, I mean, I looked it up online, but I didn't know any of their names offhand. And I thought they're these great heroes of the faith that had an impact. And just think that maybe some of the next 100-year heroes are your kids running, running around this camp this week. What if a bunch of them are the next 100-year heroes? I think that could really be possible along the way. And and as we as we do that tonight, I wanted to take a minute. Hopefully, I'll be a, be a little quicker tonight. But I wanted I wanted you to see those because you just pray for them. This is uh, uh, for Paula and I. This is certainly our number one life priority. Is these guys? We also have a, a COVID baby, Janie Lynn, who's one, who's not not in the picture. But they're uh, they were pretty cute, weren't they? Pretty pretty wonderful. So as we talk about. And think about our children, because I know I know you're thinking about that so much in what in what you're listening to. As we're talking, as we're looking at God's word, we're saying, How can I make this alive in our kids? One of the things that we're seeing now, um, like never before, is is where kids feel we we for generations we talk to kids about self-esteem. And often on one hand, kids will say they have great self-esteem. And then on the other hand, we see we see the world fall, falling apart because kids feel like they have no worth or no value. They don't have anybody following them on Instagram. I was telling Kevin a second ago that our my eight year old granddaughter was. We were talking the other day, and she was like, "I'm going to create a YouTube site, and I'm going to do, you know." And, and I could just see in her mind she she thinks she's going to create this following. And I thought, you know, as she gets older, um. I, we raised three three girls and a boy, and we we know what it's like to raise teenage girls and how how girls and guys that they have different ways of mistreating each other as they get older. And but the, but the soul destroying nature of of taking people's worth and value away. And it's interesting as I was thinking back in my own life on this on my third turning point. I want to share with you today. I'm, I'm moving to Matthew six, but my third huge spiritual turning point came to me. In the summer of 1972, and I mentioned this, I was thinking about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In fact, I'll, I've got another picture of that. Let me let me pull that up on my photos, just to show you that this was um, as I was sharing with you that need number four was love and belonging. You probably see that friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. But but when you move up to level four on esteem, it's respect, self-esteem, status, recognition strength, freedom. So when Marguerite, at eight years old, is saying, I'm going to create a YouTube channel, what's she talking about? She's talking about a level four 
hierarchy of needs. She's talking about doing something that would give her recognition, credibility, and a sense of value, something that she's contributing. And it's interesting that at 16, that's kind of where I found myself. And I really, I really feel for this next generation because they're forced to confront these things so much sooner of where do they get their value. And um, I, I just read this an hour before I came to dinner. They said, if you post something negative on social media, they've just done huge studies of this. If you post something negative, it's going to have more than two times the attention and lifespan of something that posted that's positive. And that's the world that our children are growing up in and our grandchildren. And so at 16, I didn't have that. I just had relationships. That's all we had, right? And I remember my junior year in high school, I won the starting job at quarterback for Memphis Central High School. And by the way, just just in case you're real impressed, we had a tailback, Terry Smith, who was a black athlete. We were, a, we were the first integra- fully integrated high school in Memphis. He was 10 times the quarterback that I was. And the coach decided to move him to tailback where he was way less effective. I honestly think if the coach would have kept him in quarterback, you might even know his name as a household name today. I mean, that's how great he was. In fact, at the tailback position, he threw seven, he threw eight touchdown passes as a tailback that season. I threw seven as the full-time starting quarterback. But I still had a pretty, pretty good sense of esteem that I like. I made it. We had a good team. We had a good season, and I really enjoyed it. That winter, I made the starting lineup in basketball. And as I told you before, I was genuinely trying to follow Jesus in my life. Really wanted Jesus to be honored in my life. But here's what happened. All was not well because I was starting to experience what almost all teenagers experience, which is a sense of creeping anxiety. What am I going to do with my life? How am I going to make my contribution What am I going to do that's going to give me recognition? Do I have what it takes? And at the same time that all of that was happening, something worse was happening. And what that was, was the people that I thought were my friends, as we were moving through the high school years, didn't turn out to be the trustworthy friends that I thought they were. You know, there was the the infighting. There was the the kind of the one-upsmanship. And all of a sudden, as... What I experienced, I've learned that almost all high school kids experienced it, which is, is everybody just out for themselves? Like when it really comes down to it? Or are you really, are, is there really a sense of selflessness out there? Even my Christian friends were, were really disappointing. And I'm sure if you would ask them today, they say, yeah, and Andrews was real disappointing to us too. I mean, I'm not saying that this was one way. But at the, at the core, despite how good my life was, I felt small and insignificant in the, in the scope of the world. And what I've seen over the decades, and especially since the, the world of digital media, is that this sense of feeling small and insignificant is starting to crush the generation of people that are growing up in it, right? Does anybody disagree? Anybody? I mean, just nod if you're still with me, unless you had too much of that beef and you're already asleep. It's okay. I love you. Better people than you have fallen asleep while I'm talking. So, just kidding. That's not true because you're about the best people I've been around a long time. So this is what was funny. Here's the turning point. And my wife doesn't know this is coming. She's going to laugh at this uh, because it's, it's pretty, pretty cheesy. 
But as I was trying to figure out my life, I, I made it a high, a, 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 what, what would seem to be a pretty innocuous decision in the summer of 1972. I took my girlfriend at the time on a date. Crickets? Nothing? Come on, give me a little cred. I actually was 16 and had a date. Come on, anybody impressed? <laughs> you guys are really tough on me tonight, man. Come on, give me some hope. <laughs> so, but here's what was crazy. The early 70s, if, if, you're, if you're my age, if, if you're 60 or over, the, the late 60s and through the 70s was like the worst movie time in the history of America. Movie, does anybody agree with me? Movies were just really bad and depressing and, you know, I mean, just not good. Go back and watch 70 movies. Anyway, that was my, my thought of it. And so we were looking for a movie to go to, and, we, and this is the title of the movie, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. <laughs> anybody even remember the title? Raise, raise your hand and date yourself, okay? I see these two. Hey, you barely even raised your hand, man. You were trying to hide. You, you did, but <laughs> the shame of it all. We decided to go to this movie. What we didn't know is it was a story of the life of Francis of Assisi. And it was actually a pretty cool art film at the time because it was done by Franco Zeffirelli, who also did the original like five-part series of Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you might have watched that as a kid. They would show that the week of Easter. So as I went to this film, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting much. Uh, certainly less exciting than a face-to-face encounter with a leopard or throwing a smoke bomb in the Memphis Public Library, but it was something. And so as we went to this movie, I didn't know anything about Francis because I wasn't raised Catholic. I didn't realize how, how he was such really an incredible story. And if you've never read anything about him, it would be worth reading the things we know about him. And so I can't tell you the whole story, but I just want to tell you this to lead us into the passage tonight. He grew up as a wealthy family. In a wealthy family, his father was a prominent silk uh, producer of garments and raiments. And uh, he grew up as a very carefree, hedonistic you know, boy, lived a wild life, was, did a military thing where he was actually a prisoner of war for a while, very sick. He came home. He continued to live kind of a wild, carefree life. And at some point, he had an experience with Jesus Christ. And the film was trying to explain that. And part of that is he would, you know, if you know anything about Francis, his part of it was nature. He was experiencing God through the, the birds and the mountains and the breeze and the, and the life and the creation of God. But in this, the core, the core principle of this film was that he was turning to where his life was totally devoted to Jesus with the repudiation of all things, right? A vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy, you know, a vow uh, of charity, which was the really big one where it was about loving and caring for people. And there's a scene in which Claire, who in real life, we think Claire was probably in love at some level with Francis. In the movie, there's this scene where, in, in, by, in the movie, you'd have she, she's just this beautiful girl. I, I mean, I was 16 and in love with her in the film. And she's, she's running out to, out to the countryside to see Francis because she really cares about him. Man, I'll never forget this. In fact, Paula's seen the movie. She, she probably thinks it's cheesy, but. I, I just tell you, 16-year-old boy, I'm watching this scene. I love this. I love the fact that, you know, she's such a sweet – and she comes up over the edge in the river and looks down in the river, and Francis and his 11 buddies are in the river, and they're bathing these people with leprosy. 
<laughs> I'm just having a date with my girlfriend. And in this film, the and they're lo- oh, they're just they're singing. And they're singing. And, and there was uh, I can't remember the guy that wrote the soundtrack, but they were singing the thing. If you want to live life free, learn to give, go slowly. That's what they were singing. It's incredible. And you see these beautiful people and these beautiful young men, and they're bathing these people that are just completely disfigured and mentally handicapped, all the things that were happening, and they're just doing it with the joy of God. And this was the moment where God, watching this film, that God gave me what I, I, I look back on my life as the third invitation of my life, which is the invitation to the gift of significance. Like, what could you do that would make your life significant? And I'm watching this film, and I'm thinking, bathing lepers, people with leprosy, people disfigured by this horrible disease, people that are are sick and dying, caring for the elderly, and doing it all with this incredible joy. And up to that time in my life, I don't think I even imagined that that was possible because I grew up like everybody else. Was the world was about me. Uh, some of, some of my gang from from Ann Arbor know, knows this. This is a thing I tell about the Andrews family. We actually have a family motto, and our family motto goes like this: I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. It's a lot funnier than how you just acknowledge. Maybe that's your family motto. But I thought, Francis, and you go back to his life, his life was so incredibly directed towards Jesus Christ. All he wanted was to devote his life to Jesus. There's a later scene in the film where Claire creates also a sister order to what became the Franciscans of the male order of this thing. And there's a moment where she has this shoulder-length hair. And there's a scene where she's standing in the river with Francis. And he has this pair of shears. And he's cutting her beautiful golden hair off. And, and part of me was just horrified. But part of me was saying, I only want to live for what is eternal. For what is truly significant. What Claire was saying Yes, my, my hair is beautiful, but really it's insignificant. And so there was this radical sense of where do you get your significance from? One last scene in the film. He goes, this is a true story. We don't know if he actually did this when he visited the Pope, but he went to see the Pope in the uh, like 12, 1204, 1205, sometime around that. So this is, we're talking over 900 years, 800 years ago. And he goes to the Pope, and, and it's the scene is, is the grandeur of the Pope and the wealth and the ornate, the rings and the jewels, and, the, and, and it's just the Pope is high and lifted up on this throne. And Francis is supposed to read this petition to make a petition for the order that he's created where they're going to live in poverty and they're going to care for the poor and they're, gonna, they're just going to serve and rebuild. And everybody was against it because they thought it was too unsafe and it just wasn't going to be profitable for the church. It was a bad idea. And in this moment, he starts to read this, this stilted speech that they had written for him, and eventually he just drops it, and he begins to weep. And by memory, he begins to quote Matthew 6, 19 to 30. 
and I'm just watching this film. And if you went back and watched it, some of you pulled up on YouTube and watched it. It's it's not it hasn't stood the test of time, probably. But for me, it was life altering. And this is what he begins to read, and he's pleading with the Pope. If you have you have your script, your your phone, or wherever you can look this up, or you can just follow with me. But he says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth." He's looking up at the at the grandeur of the Pope, and there's just jewels and unbelievable. It's the wealthiest place that we knew of in the Western world, right? It's all opulence. And he starts saying to the Pope, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. His voice choking up as he's saying this. This for where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Now I'm going to stop and just explain here. But this is an interesting word, this word treasure. It's thesarizo, which means to gather and lay up. And, I, and this is what I want you to remember, because this is what people are doing in our culture. To heap up. To store up. It's like, how much can you get? How much is enough to accumulate riches, to keep in store, to store up, to reserve? And and in the world, it's all about storing up. It's all about gathering up. But we know with Jesus, at the end, what did he have? You can answer this out loud. Nothing. The only thing he had left, remember from Matthew 25 yesterday, the last thing he had was his garments. And they stripped those off. So he had nothing, not one item. Nothing that he had thesarizoed up. The only thing he had heaped up was love for people and for the marginal. Now, it's interesting. I didn't realize this. The word for treasure is the same word, thesaurus, the place in which good and precious things are collected and laid up. It's actually not the treasure itself, but it's the it's the basket or the casket. It's the coffer where you would, it's like, it, it would be like your jewelry box if you really had expensive jewelry that was worth keeping. But he's saying, he's saying, don't store up for anything that's on this planet, but store it up for heaven. And I got to tell you, it's hilarious what we store up. My dad was a, ta- my dad was a doctor, and he was also, brace yourself for this, a taxidermist. He loved wild birds, uh, game birds that we that we would hunt all over the United States and all over Africa, and all over. The, in fact, Dad and I in that year in Africa, we mounted two hundred birds that we that we arranged in barrels and had them shipped back to the United States. How ridiculous is that? Franklin ducks, geese, uh, sand grouse, doves. I mean, it, it just uh, it, guinea guinea fowl of all kinds, and it was so fun. And the day he died, do you know what we did? The, the day after he died, we gathered as a family. And we started distributing the birds. In other words, we started scattering the birds. Said, who wants a bird? And, and there were some birds that nobody wanted, and, and all of a sudden there were birds that just got thrown. And it's like it was almost a symbol of anything you keep in this life. Once you're gone, it doesn't matter. It just all goes away. So the only thing that's going to matter is things that are treasured in heaven. So, for example, David's talking about these antennas. And we give, I mean, we definitely 
there's no us giving ten thousand for these antennas is no brainer. We've got to do that. We if somehow we come short, we have, let's all email each other and just. But though, but that antenna, if that's the only thing you ever did, is gonna is gonna carry fruit into into the future. Will be more important than anything you keep as a treasure. That's all Jesus is saying. He goes on to say, and Patrick's talking, I mean, Francis is talking to the Pope. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I, I don't have time to get in and talk about all the languages, but simply this. If what you're focusing on is not eternal, it's going to lead to poison in your life. Like if you aren't keeping a heavenly perspective, you're gonna your your eyes are gonna eventually lead you in to a dark place. You're gonna see the world in dark ways. He goes on to say, "No one can serve two masters." Oh man, I can't read this without seeing the film. He's like he's talking to the Pope. He's like, "No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one." and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And we know in the history of the church that whenever the church, I'm not just talking about the Catholic church, but the Protestant church or any church, whenever the church has had power, it's been at its worst. God never intended us to have that. The fact that in our culture we're losing our voice, people are worried about that. You know what? There's part of me that thinks that's awesome. Because what power did Jesus have? What power as they mocked him on the cross? What power did the apostles go as they were going into all the world? They all got killed. What happened for the first 200 years of the church? Ten major persecutions in Rome. Christians had nothing. They were only known for their love of other people and for their love of Jesus. Look at this word, master. The same word as Lord would be like a word that we actually use to, to describe the Lord Jesus. Kyrios. And here's the definition, which I thought was cool. Some of you never, never might, might seen this. If someone is your Lord, this person has control of you. Hang on, let me get to that. You see that? Kyrios. You, you literally, you're saying, I'm giving you control of my life. I belong to you. We're going back to this morning's talk. And then he goes on to say, you cannot serve both. You're going to hate one and love the other. This word love is agapao, which is where we get our, our biblical word agape, which describes God's love, but it's, it's, it means to be well-pleased. And here's So we're talking about significance tonight. This is the word. It says if you serve you're, you're, whatever you choose, you're going you're to be content with one master, and you're going to hate the other one. And this is where, to, for those of us who have a lot of resources or a lot of freedom, it's so dangerous for us to, to transfer uh, a false love to something that in the end is not going to give us the significance that we're looking for. Francis goes on with the Pope. He says, therefore, I tell you, and now I want to just talk to you. Let me just read this to you and think about this. He says, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. And I remember when I was a 16-year-old, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm worried about everything. 
as a father of teenage kids, uh, I cannot tell you how many nights that I would, I would wake up and I'd find Paula gone from the bed. And I'd go down into our great room in, in Rochester Hills, and she, she'd be down there weeping for our children. And there are nights that she would wake up, and I'd be gone. And she'd come, and she'd find me praying, Lord, I have one prayer left, and that's not my will, but yours be done. That's all I can pray tonight, what I talked about this morning. And that, was, that wasn't dozens of nights. That was hundreds of nights. And so when Jesus says, don't worry, it's like every time he said, don't be afraid, you're thinking, why did you? That's the most ridiculous thing in the world because you know you're going to worry and you know you're going to be afraid. That's why he said it so many times. But here's what's beautiful about it. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? What if I said to you, don't worry about your kids. Don't worry about where your kids are going to go to school. Don't worry about... Your kids having friends. Don't worry about their learning. Well, you look at me like, are you nuts? In fact, I asked Paula today, and she she said, said actually, when we worry, we feel like we're doing something noble, like that we really care. But Jesus is asking us to take that worry and place it on Him. And then this is where He said, "Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns." And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I forgot to look up that word for valuable. I I love that word. He's like, don't you get it? Look at the simple look out, look out the window right now. Look at the sun shining on that lake and the beautiful homes, those beautiful trees, this beautiful world that God has created. And to say, are you not more valuable than that tree or that house or this beautiful lake? Imagine if you tried to total up the net worth value of the homes around Gold Lake. And Jesus would walk in here tonight and say to you, you know what? You're a billion times more valuable than all the property and all the money that's ever been stored up in Gull Lake in the history of the existence of people in this place on planet Earth. You, as one man, are infinitely more precious to me than all of this. So Isaiah talks about what the life of the nations is like a net. But to you, Jesus sees you, you have a worth that you can't imagine. You look at your kids. I, I remember our kids, we, our kids were famous for being uh, slightly below average athletes. I had, we had two daughters that per, were perennial JV stars in high school. And, uh, but here's, here was the beautiful part. You think we cared? You say, hey, you know, I'd be, be sitting with a guy and his, his daughter would be going to Auburn and this one would be going to Michigan State and going to Scott. Where's your daughter? He's right there, sitting on, the, sitting on the end of the bench, right? Absolutely, infinitely valuable. That's how you see your kids. And I remember when our kids were young, we prayed so hard that God would bring people into our life that would see our children. And I'll tell you, Gull Lake is as good as any place on planet Earth at doing that, that we've ever experienced. Almost done here. 
Can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your life? This is the strangest Greek construction of everything in this story that Jesus tells, because basically uh, Jesus, the literal translation of this, can any of you add a cubit, which is basically uh, elbow to fingertips, 18 inches, can any of you by worrying add eight inches to the length of your life? Doesn't even make sense. But the whole idea is, I, I, we had a disagreement. I think Jesus was making a joke. And I, it's probably like, here, none of us got it. But the point was, to worry means to be troubled or obsessed about one's own interests. And as you were thinking about this, Paul later in Philippians 2.3 is going to say, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but rather consider others better than yourselves. In other words, don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In any way, that's the exact definition of worry. And I thought worry paralyzes us from caring for others. Worry is what paralyzes us from breaking out of our comfort zones. And then he says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here to, today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That's a great word, by the way. Look at this word down here. This is the word for little faith. Oligopistus. I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. It means trusting too little. But it's like, what? oh, you have little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What, what is our pension? What's our job security? What are our kids going to do? Who's going to take care of our, you know, how are we going to take care of our parents? Jesus saying, trust me with your life. In fact, look at this. This is, this is incredible to me. Um, these two words that he says, um, he says, um, will he not much more clothe you? This is really bad grammar, but the two words he uses, one is polis, which is many and much or large, and malin, which is more by far to a greater, to a greater degree. This is how he says, I'm going to take care of you. I will, how much will I clothe you? I will literally, I'm over the top going to take care of you. And it's almost like if Jesus were here and he was talking to us, he's like, are you kidding me? I'm going to extremely care for you. You're worried about your kids? Are you kidding me? I am going to, I'm going to watch over you. Your kids have wandered far away. You think I don't know where they are? You don't think I can find them? You don't think that God can't redeem all the broken decisions of our lives that we all made? I was talking to a guy, one of the, one of the guys in here uh, right after lunch. He was just talking about making stupid decisions in college. And I was thinking, yeah, you're the first guy that's ever made stupid decisions in college. <laughs> Come on. And God's saying, I'm going to use all of those things for my glory. Somehow I'm going to transform even the most broken parts of your life. I thought, is Jesus enough? Is he really offering us the gift of significance that no one can demean or take away? And the answer is yes. Then let me finish with this. And this is I've either forgotten this or it's a new insight for me. Look at verse 32. It says, For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is kind of an interesting decision on whoever did, whoever translated the NIV because 
it says the pagans run after all these things. It's the exact same word for see. It's the, it's it's the pagans seek after all these things. So if you're seeking all these things in anxiety, and you're you're living your life like I have, worried about am, am I enough? Is is are things going to work out? What about what about the church when I step out of, out of leadership? What if it all it's like Jesus, like Steve? I got it. Everything other than you and the people you love is a drop in the bucket. doesn't really matter. But you matter. And the people I died on the cross for matter. This is what God wants you to see as you see your children, as you see the people that come into your life. So he says, the pagans seek after this. And what does it mean to seek? It's the word epizeteo. It means to inquire for, to seek for, to seek diligently, to crave something. And this is something I'd love for the, as couples, for you to talk about sometime to say, like, what are we craving as a couple? So the Andrews family, or the Rogan family, or the Gray family, right? What are we craving to see God do with our lives? Like, I, I shared about the Pocot on Sunday morning. Julius Murgor and I have an agreement that we're, we're going to spend every ounce of energy we have to the rest of our lives till every Pocot has clean water to drink and every child can get an education and that there will be a church in every village. And we've seen unbelievable things. We have probably 400 village churches and we have about 40% of people drinking clean water. We still have probably $30 million to go. <laughs> it's, you know, Let's take an offering for that. No, but I love this antenna. Let's, let's nail this antenna and more. I love what you guys are doing. But my point is, if I stop craving that, then let me die. Like, just let me die in early. Well, it's impossible to die early now. But let me, let me, let me die early. Too late. Because it says the pagans are seeking... What they don't know is that, their heaven, that the Heavenly Father already knows what people need. He, he knew the hierarchy of needs of Maslow long before Maslow wrote it up. He knows what you need. He knows what you crave and what you clamor for, what you hope for. So he says, clamor, crave his kingdom and his righteousness. Can't cra- crave the things that matter to him above all else. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Last, last word study of the night, the word first, proton. That's a pretty cool word, isn't it? And the definition is first in time or place. Now, there's make Jesus first. First in front of what? Every, every minute in which you could spend your life in time of continuing to figure out what would it look like if Jesus was first in that moment, including the times that you need to get alone and recharge and be quiet or watch, even watch a football game. What if watching a football game became a holy exercise? I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to make that happen. But also, there are other definitions, but, but first in rank, I know you can't read it in the blue, and first in influence, and first in honor. 
Like this is how Francis lived his life. It was Jesus first and, and living out the things that Jesus cared about. Seek first his kingdom. First things first. Just therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And so all these years later, <laughs> so that was 49 years ago. By the way, I had a pretty good head of hair back in those days too. I was pretty impressive. But as we're wrapping up, I thought in coming to this camp, I, have, I just have no doubt that many, many of us are struggling with anxiety. My first 25 years leading Kensington, we had this incredible run. It was really amazing. I don't need to describe it to you, but um, God just used a bunch of goofballs and some really, really cool things happened. And we saw, man, a lot of people come to Christ. I don't know what happened about seven years ago. I just got filled with anxiety again, like I was 16 years old again. And I started waking up every night and literally like on the dot, ding, 3 a.m. And I started to hate the night. Anybody ever, ever been there? And I couldn't go back to sleep. I didn't know what to do. Sometimes I would pray, and prayer would make it worse because I would just all of a sudden start thinking about all the things I was praying for, the things I felt anxious for. At some point, I felt like the Lord said, Steve, get up and read a book. Relax. Listen to a story. I got it. This is not, I'm not sitting up in heaven worried about everything you're worried about. We had one of our kids that was really struggling with a desire about, you know, how much they really wanted to be here on this planet, you know? Like, no, I got to spend all of my time worrying. It's like, can he be, can Jesus be enough? Can you trust him, you know, for your life? And uh, I don't think I'm ever not going to struggle with anxiety, but I can tell you, coming back to that decision in 1972, it's maybe more relevant today than it was then. Because he's got it. He's like, why are you worried? Man, look at the flowers. Look at this. We're at Gull Lake for crying out loud. Look at, look at what I do. And trust me with your life. So here's how I want to finish tonight. I want to read the message version of, the, of, of the, those last verses 30 to 33 one more time but i want you to close your eyes if if you feel anxious and you're sitting next to your wife or your husband and you want to hold hands while i read this to you or these young guys here just thinking about your life or what god's calling you to do like what's the mission you know that he's placed you on and like are you going to be enough are you going to have what it takes all the things that every single human being thinks about and just go jesus you got this i'm i'm going to trust you to get this done so, so I'd love for you to close your eyes just so you can focus on, 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 on the prayer that Jesus and what Francis did to the Pope, Jesus is saying to us right now. So here it is. Jesus, thanks for speaking to us and for giving of, giving of your words and your love, giving us the gift of significance to say our lives matter because we matter to you and you give us there's just so many significant things 
that reflect your character and your life that are flowing out of these men and women it, to, to, to even try to estimate the beauty that's going to come out of, that has come and will come out of the lives of the people sitting in this room. It can't even be, it can't even be measured, but Lord, you're continuing to call us to trust you with our lives and to say, you're enough and I'm going to find my significance first in you. And so here Jesus is, he's speaking to you right now, every one of you in this room. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to be relaxed, <laughs> to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over all these things. But you know both God and you know how he works. So steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions, and don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. And I just would add to that prayer that Jesus has known you every step of your life. There's never been a moment when he hasn't loved you. There's never been a place that you've gone that he's lost you. There's never been a stumble or a moment of discourage, discouragement when he hasn't watched over you. Your loved ones may lose their way. But Jesus will still know. And he invites you to receive his gift of great esteem and worth and significance. And for us today, again, recommit to trusting him who loves us most and has proven it. He is our light. He can handle our fears. And even when we forget and fall, he's still there. He is life and joy. And he is enough. In Jesus' name.